Welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is podcast number 37. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jeremy Goldberg. He is a fascinating human. He has spent the better part of the last five or so years studying the science of human behavior, specifically how attitudes affect action and how we can communicate to inspire greater and lasting change. His life took a meandering and wandering course, which we'll get into in the podcast, which I find really fascinating. He is also a poet. He writes often, rants about love, life, and everything in between. He calls himself a compassion-cultivating, day-making change agent, a kind heart, someone who believes in you. Normally, I'd go off and give you a lot more information about him, but I think the podcast did such a good job of answering those questions about who he is and why he does what he does that I'm just going to let it start from what he believes, how he decides to choose to use words in conversation, and all of the rest of the beautiful ways that he sees the world and his website called The Long Distance Love Bombs. This is just such a fun hour, such a fun conversation with a man who sees the world through a lens that I would love to look through. He is a special guy and a super conversationalist. So with that, enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jeremy Goldberg. Well, welcome to the podcast, Jeremy Goldberg. It is an absolute pleasure to have you uh, on here to get our discussion on about the choice of words, what words mean, the beauty of that existence that we have. And uh, thanks for taking the time all the way from British Columbia. Yeah, stoked to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with something you wrote as I've been perusing your work, which I absolutely love. Uh, you wrote, quote, you are the Indiana Jones of your soul. In the hole below the surface that holds the happiness you seek, practice emotional archaeology. Dig deep down into the hurt, heart of the hurt, but be gentle, tender, handle yourself with care, and most importantly, don't ever forget, there's treasure in there. Wow, man. That is an amazing way of saying to all of us, I don't care what age you're at, search within the injuries that you've dealt with in your life that holds you back in whatever way, shape, or form they do. Right those ships, avoid letting those triggered past moments, you know, reflect in, in your future and the present actions that exist in relationship. So to you, I, you know, I was sort of thinking, this guy's got great mastery over the words. You know, I'm a Star Wars fan. So you're like the Qui-Gon Jinn of word use, you know, the master you know, tell us about your story, you know, where you came to this path in life, you know, that you enjoy being in the in the space of writing, you know, and podcasting and everything else. Yeah, geez. Um, well, first, I don't really remember writing that. And as you were reading it, I was thinking, oh, this is actually good. I like this. And <laughs> this is cool. And then towards the end, I did have a faint light in my soul of recognition and remembrance. So um, but just on the words piece, I love this idea that I heard when you talk about words, there is a core part of that, which is spelling, right? And then when you think about spells, you think about wizardry and magicians and sorcery and casting some kind of magic into the world. And so I love at the heart of spelling is this kind of incan 
incantinate what's the word incantation incantation as you just said like this guy's a word genius he he knows everything about words <laughs> yeah incantate sorry it's a little bit early for me but there's this incantation right where you're you're creating and i think also that words are powerful things and words are what we use to describe and define our existence our beliefs our identity our desires our dreams etc and they're really they're a really big deal in terms yeah. of how we communicate with others, but also the internal dialogue that we have with ourselves. And I think what I was trying to get across there is that, you know, shame is not a sustainable, healthy manner of motivating yourself long-term. Right. And we oftentimes forget that we can't change the past, but we can rewrite that story. We can cast a new spell on who we are and how we interpret those experiences to give ourselves a better chance of, of living an easier, healthier, more productive life, et cetera. So I love words. I'm a words dork, uh, as I say. And then uh, my story is that I kind of got into the space that I'm in now. Very, uh, I took the windy road. I took the scenic route. Um, and I like to say that I'm a compassion cultivating day making change agent. Uh, an anti-quitting word wizard, um, an empathy-collecting, ferocious never-giver-upper. Um, my my job now is working in the personal development industry. I work as a life coach. I host retreats and workshops. I wrote a book. I have a podcast. I have a nose ring. I'm like the cliche, stereotypical personal development dude. I'm a man that, like, in my 20s, I would have made fun of and mocked. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's so, so surreal how life happens and how we change and who we become. But my background is in science. So I'm a science dork as well as a word dork. I studied marine biology for many years. I worked for a couple of years in the South Pacific in a place called American Samoa, which was described to me as the part of the map that looks like a cockroach pooped all over it. It's just a lot of small dots and little island chains. So Lived down there for a while and loved it. Um, I lived in Australia for about a decade and worked on the Great Barrier Reef. I worked in Thailand and um, most of my work was focused upon coral reefs and how we can help influence people to protect the natural environment. While I was doing a PhD about that topic, I was feeling burnt out and PhDs are really hard, right? I, I know you know this, like, yeah. Doctorate programs, they they kind of, in my experience, chew you up and spit you out. Right. And so during my PhD, I started this project on the side called Long Distance Love Bombs, which was essentially me trying to make kindness cool and compassion commonplace. And I was leaving little notes around town and little encouraging insights. And I'd leave them on people's windshield wipers and at the supermarket. And I would hide these little notes in the... Uh, the pile of oranges and restaurant. Anyway, I was just like trying to do some good in the world and it was distracting from my PhD and it was fun. And then I slowly just started um, expanding that. And my little sister helped me start an Instagram account. And then I did that. And then I had a Facebook page and then I did that. And I started expanding the scope of my writing and submitting things to different websites and the weirdest thing happened, which was that people started reading my stuff and sharing it and liking it. And I gave a TED talk called What If Kindness Was Cool. And slowly over time, 
I had this kind of fork in the road appear, which was, do I continue pursuing this career path of being a scientist or do I go down this other direction, which at the time I had no freaking, I can, can I cuss on this podcast? Sure. Okay. Frickin' for those listening, I meant to say fucking. I had no fucking idea uh, <laughs> what I was doing, where I was going, but I was really drawn. My heart had changed its mind from this, this noble career of being a scientist and having a research lab and publishing papers. My heart changed its mind, and I was being tugged in this direction of working on the internet and working at long-distance love bombs for myself and having impact in that place, and over a period of one to two years in which I emerged from what I describe as the valley of the suck in which I was just burnt out, upset, numb, drinking way too much, smoking a bunch of weed in a relationship that was great, but also not, you know? Um, So I emerged from that and just decided at the end of my thesis to buy a rusted van and drive around America for a couple months, camping and hiking and filling my cup back up. And I had a conversation with my PhD supervisor and proclaimed that I was not going to be applying for jobs. I was not going to be filling out selection criteria or continuing to work this incredible government job that I had with the swipe card and the cubicle and all the bells and whistles that was literally a dream come true but it was no longer my dream. I had a new dream. And so I just went all in and I spent my savings and I decided to be a life coach. And I just made an Instagram post saying, Hey, if you want to work with me, let me know. And to my astonishment, a handful of people wanted to pay me money to talk to me, (laughs) which was just so surreal. And um, yeah, that was probably six or seven years ago now, and I'm doing it full time. I'm teaching in various places around the world. I've got a book that came out and I'm writing my second book. And yeah, man, it's been a a windy, weird road full of pitfalls and potholes and detours and second glances and second chances. And here I am. Yeah, and I think for the listeners, whether you're a teenager listening to this, a young adult, the parents, or even the providers, what that story illustrates as always is that which is not aligning with your mission, your passion, your heart, is something that we often, too often, actually is probably the best way of saying, stay with because it's the safe, secure route. And instead, you were clearly led to do things that aligned with something different in you, the passion. And I want to ask you a simple question before we move on with this. Like when you dropped those love bombs everywhere around Samoa, where the places you were, were you waiting behind to see if people got them or you just let them and walk away? So that's sort of like the, the corollary to that. I, I think of in, in Christian philosophy is, you know, you pray in silence. You don't pray for others to see you pray. So you're getting accolades for the work you've done. You know, that that would be hard for me to leave it and not want to see the reaction of the person doing it, receiving it. Yeah, I've heard that described, too, as the highest form of generosity is anonymous, right? Right. And so that you're giving to give. And for me, I was doing it unintentionally that way just because I was scared (laughs) to see the responses. But also I realized later that I was having a tremendous amount of fun doing it. 
And I really liked the daydreaming and the not knowing, and I could create my own stories and I could tell myself, oh, this is making a big, a big impact in someone's life. And they're going to find it just at the right time when they need to read that thing. And rather than like poking my head around the corner and seeing somebody read it and just throw it in the trash or whatever. So I was operating more from a place of inadequacy and fear, I think, especially to start because it felt scary and vulnerable to put messages and, and my own words out into the world because in doing so you expose yourself to judgment. Right. Right. And so my fear of judgment was actually me judging myself and it took me a little while to unpack that process too. So yeah, man, I was just like going for it. I, I just wanted that. to do something at the time. I just, I saw the state of the world and I, I didn't like that kindness was this revolutionary concept. And I just felt like we all needed a little bit more compassion and just wanted right. to try and do something. Right. And I think again, yeah. for the listener, for the listeners, you think about, you know, you're heading down that land, like you said, the doctor route of PhD is a grind. I mean, it's a massive grind. And so again, for the listeners, if your kid is on this path, be aware that it's a grind and don't just look for the accolades in their work. Look for the the holes in their happiness and, and try and give them the guidance to do that, which is in their passion to fill their bucket, to fill their well. Like you said, like, you know, if you keep grinding and you don't fill your well with happiness in some way, shape or form, you will burn out. Right. And so I think that's another key piece of the takeaway from what you did. The long distance love bombs was your way to temporize the time while you were still doing your PhD. Cause you were unsure you had fear, you had unknowns. You found a way to, to fill yourself, to give your well, even that tiny ounce of water that was being drained. I think that is incredibly important. And to give your kids the license to do that. Again, I don't think as a parent, our job is to tell our kids what to do, but give them the license to be the Jeremy Goldberg in the place of doubt and drop those love bombs around. I, I absolutely, I, you know, Jeremy, when I read all your stuff, I was like, this is the coolest thing. And again, I wish I thought of it, right? I think it's the greatest idea. Yeah. And I think I would just, I appreciate that. Those kind words are are meaningful. And I think I would add to that. Looking back, I had no intention of making this a business, right? Like my, my dream was to be a scientist and I was, I was in it, man. I had, you know, a decade of experience. I was hustling and working and grinding and I'd made it like I was working for the Australian government. I had a prestigious international scholarship at a renowned university. Like I was doing it. It was happening. And I was just following what I call the heart whispers, which I describe life as kind of like this heart whispers and fear shouts. And so I was getting these little, these little hits from my heart. They're like, Hey, Hey man, like, Go leave some notes on the potato stack at the market. Psst, like that, that's fun, right? Or psst, quit your quit your job and buy a van and drive around America. That sounds super cool, right? So I was getting these little heart whispers and then my brain kicked in and my fear started shouting. So heart whispers, fear shouts. And my brain was like, you can't do this. That's impossible. That's not even a real job. What about your, what about your career? How will you make money? What will your family think? What will your friends say? You don't know how to do this. You're not qualified, blah, blah, blah. And all of that thing was happening. All of those loud shouts. 
were happening at the same time that my heart continued to whisper, hey, start an Instagram account. Hey, apply for that TED Talk, right? And so I've learned through experience and looking back and trying to unpack how I got to where I am, that I believe our job is simply to take the next invisible step on that path of heart, right? Mm -hmm. That next invisible step that is like, hey, this feels exciting, expansive, fun, different. I don't know why I'm supposed to do that thing, but I can't not do that thing. I just, I'm supposed to make that call. I'm supposed to start that business. I'm supposed to say that thing. I'm supposed to do that thing. And our job is simply to honor and acknowledge that to the best of our capability and capacity, and then just kind of get out of the way, right? right? And magic happens. And so, you know, I definitely had experiences where people that deeply cared about me were asking very rational, important questions, such as, Jeremy, how are you going to make money? Or, hey, Jeremy, when are you going to get a real job? Or, hey, Jeremy, uh, you know, you're in your 30s and you have a doctorate and you're living with your mom because I just finished this van trip. That last one was basically me shaming myself, which is a different aside kind of story. But yeah, man, I'd, I'd spent a decade of pursuing this scientific career. I'd spent several months living in a van going hiking at the Grand Canyon and all these places and found myself back in my parents' house with no job, uh, a whole lot of confusion, a whole lot of fear and anxiety and guilt. And I was kind of a, a mess there for a minute. And, right. um, and then I kind of picked myself up and was like, we're going like, this yeah. is the path. And, so that entire exercise was a really beautiful invitation and initiation into self-trust and grit and courage and belief, et cetera. So yeah. I think to, to people listening, uh, sometimes the thing that makes the least amount of sense is actually the safe option. And sometimes the thing that makes the most sense is actually the dangerous option because for me in that example what would have made the most sense on paper was you've got a phd you have a government job you have a whole bunch of skills and abilities and what makes the most sense is apply for a good job get a good paying job working for the government using your degrees and live that life right and that made the most sense but for me long term I would have been living a life that was not what I'm here to do. My heart would have been this little square peg forced into the round hole of life. I would have always wondered what could have been, what might've happened. I would have not have, I, I did not take a chance on myself. I was not deeply fulfilled. I was just moderately fulfilled. Right. And so that for me, is a very dangerous option to look back on your life on your deathbed and be like, yeah, it was pretty good. Like, and I, and, and to die wondering what might have been if I had followed my heart and taken a chance. Right. And so in that way, the most comfortable, rational, reasonable option is the most dangerous. 
from my perspective in this very specific example. Now, full transparency, giant asterisk, <laughs> I did I did some analyses before that, which was like, okay, what are my responsibilities? I didn't have children. I didn't have a mortgage. I wasn't doing anything dangerous. I wasn't doing anything harmful, right? I had a backup plan, which was I'll go and live with my parents. But on that note, and hopefully this is a helpful perspective, I had this epiphany sitting in my cubicle one day, which was, oh my God, I'm already living my worst case scenario. Like I'm living my worst case scenario right now. Meaning if I take a chance on myself and I go try this long distance love bombs thing and I try to be a life coach and I buy the van and I take the trip and I don't get any clients and I don't get any money and my business fails and I go and I live with my mom for a little while, then what happens? Well, I have a PhD in 10 years of experience. I know a lot of people. I'll probably get another job. And what kind of job will I get? Well, I'll probably get a job where I work in a cubicle for the government, writing papers, wearing collared shirts, just like the job I have, I have right now, right. just like this cubicle that I'm sitting in right now. And so, oh my God, the worst case scenario is I go off, I take a chance on myself in my life for a year. That was kind of my runway. I had some savings and I could bum some couches and live with my mom. I'm going to go take this wild chance. And in a year... Worst case scenario, I'm back in a cubicle working for the government and like what a wild adventure that would be. Yeah. And I decided for me personally, that's something that I want to do. And it's happened time and time again. So I work with clients and I was like, yo, you have a crush on this woman at the gym? Like ask her out because you're literally living the worst case scenario right now. Like right. you don't get to see her naked right now. Like that's, you know, you you don't get to be in love with this woman. You don't get to talk to this woman. Like it's already happened. And so if right. you take a chance and she says no, like you've literally lost nothing right. because you're already living your worst case scenario. So right. like take some swings, like right. try, right. just throw some, throw some shit out there in the world and see what sticks, man. Like there's, there's no, um there's no reason not to when you, when you have this perspective that you're already in the worst case scenario. So I find it really inspiring. I hope it comes across as inspiring, but yeah. that's just the trajectory that I've taken to get where I am. Yeah, and I, it is inspiring. And I want to read something you wrote again, because again, I think these are so poignant to what we're talking about. You wrote, the four most important words you'll ever see are these. Just trust in shit. Just trust in shit. And believe. Life will happen in such random, fantastic, and fabulous ways that you'll look back and laugh at the dots you connect and you'll learn. Your missteps are still an important part of the dance. So, dance. Shimmy and shake and groove and glide around the nightclub of your life. And even when the tunes sound harsh and horrific, even when your moves feel dull and neglected, even when you your feet hurt and your soul is sore, even when you can't keep up anymore and your mind mistakes the music for madness, well... You've just got to feel it. Just trust in shit. If I could choose to pursue anything, why would I yearn for turmoil, strife, and dissatisfaction? Why would I choose to lust for the perfect adjective, crave the ideal verb, and long for the one true sentence, the one that burns with such passion and perfection that my soul ignites an unquenchable burn, a searing desire for more, more, and more? It, you know, like, I mean, it's just, it, 
poetry in in motion right there like right that's exactly you that ca- encapsulates what you just said in such a beautiful way because really truly what did you do you shimmied you shake you danced you looked back you said i don't know i feared move on and you had the job like you said you were set things were good like most people and so if as a coach if you were sitting here right now and you had a bunch of teenagers or 20 year olds in front of you and and they don't have the career set and they're fear-based and they have those, what words of wisdom would you apply to their existence at the moment? I would say you're doing it right. You're doing it right. I don't remember having any idea what I wanted to do at that age. And there's part of me that still doesn't have any idea what I want to do now as a 42 year old PhD with a successful business. Right. Um, And so my advice would be, Take a deep breath, relax. You have a lot of time and just try some shit, (laughs) try some shit and trust in shit. Uh, It's truly, you know, lean into experiences. And the way that I've kind of looked at things is I want to make good memories. I want to live a life that makes me jealous. I want to live a life that's worth writing about. Right. And that's just for me. And for the individual listening, it might be the exact opposite. There might be somebody listening that's like, my dream, my huge dream is to go and sit in a cubicle and work for the government and cash paychecks and live that life and run statistical analyses and write papers. I knew many of those people and they were lit up and they were on fire and they were where they're supposed to be. And so I think we need to attempt to do more of that. And you find where you're supposed to be by learning where you're not supposed to be. It's the same idea that good choices come from the experience of making bad choices, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I said that thing, I did that thing, that did not work out so great for me. So I'm gonna learn from that experience and I'm gonna integrate that wisdom and I'm gonna inject that into my soul so that I don't make those decisions or say those things anymore. And moving forward, I'm going to attempt to do better. And I'm just going to perpetually be learning through those experiences. So yeah, I would say, uh, I would say that I would say, have some fun. And I think the the last one I would say, which is perhaps um, a little bit morose, but I find tremendous inspiration from it is don't forget that you're going to die one day. Yeah. And I think that we forget about our mortality at, at great detriment to our lives. And what I mean by that is uh, you might die tomorrow. You might die next week. Literally every day, people just disappear from the face of the planet in really random and unexpected ways. And we need to make the most of our time. We need to take advantage of the life that we have and the youth that you have and the abilities and the the tremendous amount of skills and resources available to you. Like you got feet, use them. You got hands and a brain, do stuff with them. And I think that when we can keep our mortality front of mind, it kind of goes along with that same idea of, of just trying shit, taking some chances, like, you know, figure out, what feels like a really exciting life for you right now 
and be okay with recognizing that that might change one day in the same way that I described my heart changing its mind. I'm on a very different trajectory. Like, like Chris, I'm living in Canada, dating a Canadian, working as a life coach. And seven years ago, I was living in Australia, dating in Australia, working as a scientist. Like my life is, I'd never been to Canada seven years ago. And now I, I live here. And so for me, that feels really exciting. And it's only happened because I have opened my heart to opportunity and potentialities. Like I am open. I try to remain open to what is possible as often as I can. And from my experience, that is a conduit to making memories, having fun, meeting people, learning things, and feeling fully alive. And so I guess to to that imaginary hypothetical group, I would say, figure out what makes you feel most alive and try to spend as much time doing that with people that you love. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd also add, though, to to your quest, you did not, and again, I'm speaking as if I know completely, and you can answer if that's not true, but you didn't take advantage of others along the path. You did your work. You did your due diligence to make sure that you were capable of doing whatever piece of this puzzle, journey, you know, circus, family circus route that you took, that you are not relying on others to make your existence happen right so it sounds to me like you did the due diligence to get into school get the phd get some money get the rusted out van drive and i think that's a very important piece of the 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 journey that people need to hear so if you are going to go out and chase your passions chase your 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 whatever your soul is searching for it is incumbent upon you to do that work. I think of Derek Sivers. I don't know if you ever read any of Derek's work. I love Derek's work. And when I read his work, everything he did was self-driven, self-derived with the help of others that he asked. But in general, it was not a journey at the expense of someone. It was a journey co-conspirator. So like, you know, using the words we talk about, you know, to conspire, to work together. I love that as opposed to the predatory nature or the parasitic nature of somebody using, like, for example, a child who's 19, still living in the parents' basement, smoking pot and playing video games. Yeah, not so much. So, you know, I think that's to your point. You know, I think we 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 need to explore, go, be. But with a purpose of self-reliance, would you agree? Yeah, I I agree that Derek Sivers is amazing. I had him on my podcast. He's fantastic as a thinker. I think also that I agree with what I think you're saying is that personal responsibility is a requirement for everything I've been ranting about. And I fully agree with that. And it's for me, it was a pretty slow conversion to taking radical responsibility for my life. I operated for a long time, for too long in some regard, although that's a little bit critical. I operated from a long time for a long time in a space of like victimhood or not fully accepting that my life was a consequence of my actions and my decisions. I was blaming people, etc. Mm. I was dwelling. And I certainly when you talked about the the youngster like smoking weed at their parents place and just kind of feeling lost 
Like I resonate deeply with that. I feel like yeah. I was drinking way too much for way too long and, you know, smoking a bunch of weed and I just felt lost. I felt abandoned by society. I, you know, have my own suite of experiences growing up that were really challenging that yeah. I blamed or I leaned on for explanations of why those things were happening in my life. I tolerated relationships that I that I shouldn't have because I had a low sense of self-worth and I was scared to be alone and I just didn't know how to be a good man and I didn't know how to be in relationship. I hadn't learned a whole bunch of things around boundaries and communications, et cetera. So yeah. I think I'm, I'm sharing some of that to, because I, because I often hear these podcasts and there's people like me that are like, my life is dope. Everything's perfect. And I did this and this and this, and it was all, you know, rainbow giggles and sunshine ponies. And like, in my experience, it was not that, you know, I referenced the Valley of the Suck, but also my mom was an alcoholic that, that nearly died, that battled addiction for a long time. I, looking back, was definitely exhibiting alcoholic or addictive characteristics for sure. Um, I got cheated on <clears throat> several times by a partner. I've lost money. You know, I have my own set of obstacles. And what I said before about using bad choices to slurp wisdom and experience from so that you minimize the chance of making more bad choices. Um, took me a while to learn how life worked in that way because I didn't have a lot of great mentors day to day that I could lean on for wisdom and support. And so I was very much a consciously chosen lone wolf for a while and wandering around and trying to figure it out. And, you know, when I say just try shit, um, the shadow side of that is chase shiny things and avoid responsibility and don't feel things and don't look at your life and yourself. And I definitely played that kind of Peter Pan vagabond party guy life for a while. And it served me at that time because I think I was in a lot of pain and I was feeling a lot of things and I was overwhelmed and had no idea or ability how to manage that stuff. Yeah. And then there came a point where that lifestyle no longer served me and I kind of got fed up with myself and made some really difficult choices and commitments to be better. And um, I don't drink anymore. I haven't drank in two years and haven't gotten high in a couple of years. And I do burpees and I'm vegetarian and all this stuff that I would have made fun of myself four years ago. It's like, oh, really? You don't drink? You're too good for us? You fucking loser. And now I'm like, no, my life is really great. I'm in a relationship with this woman. I can't believe I've tricked into loving me and yeah. <laughs> I, I like, I have a great life. And, um, and it's only because I made so many bad choices and wasted so much time and hurt myself and others that I was able to transform that experience into something now that I'm really proud of and, and that I'm really grateful for too. Yeah, I appreciate that candor and that humility too. I mean, it's it's always it's tough but great to hear that part of anyone's story because that's the journey that 
somebody who is stuck in that funk needs to hear to know there is a pathway out there is a healing process to right the wrongs as you stated earlier in your in the first piece i read right so the ship may not be going in the right direction and you know again i didn't know all of your story so it's sort of an assumption on my part that it was all rainbows and 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 whatever the the unicorns but you know the the truth of the matter is i'm not i don't know much of a single soul close to me that hasn't had the suck somewhere i mean you know i had plenty of suck um, you know and it's 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 a an existential reality that i think for everyone that's there and how does it come to pass in your existence and how you act um, in medicine we call that the phenotype of how you look right so that's our it's our experiential learning connected to our dna connected to the exposure which is the entire environment is how we project ourselves and sometimes we project poorly and and this is where i want to segue next because now i want to get into the qui-gon version of you right so words let's let's talk about that because if i was going to say anything about myself in a negative way i am not the best person in the choice of my words when i'm emotionally frustrated and so choosing words in relationship is super important in order to keep the space safe for the other that you're in relationship with, whether it's a child or a parent uh, or your spouse or your, you know, whatever person you're in tight relationship with. And so let's go there a little bit, because, you know, I, I fall on my sword many times, especially as a father of two, as decisions I made over the years with my kids and boy, if I could rewrite time 19 years ago to make different decisions for my kids and how I spoke to them at times, shoot, I'd whitewash half my existence right there. But you can't. So you just like you said, we got to make better choices moving forward. So let's talk about words and relationship. Yeah, man. What, what do you want to where do you want to dive in? Throw me a so, throw me. Actually, here's one. So so last night I was um, I was coaching a client. And at the end of it, I said, Hey, what do you need to hear right now? Is there anything that you need to hear right now? Because we've been talking about some emotional stuff and, and he thought for a moment and he said that I'm not a bad man. Right. And what I said to him was, I, I didn't say to him, you're not a bad man, because even implicit in that ask, the energy is focused on this concept of bad man. Right. right. And so we're bringing that into the space, into the field. And so I said, you're a great man. You're a good man. And you could see the energy just in that example of the difference between just listening. Like you're a great man and you're not a bad man. Right. And so energetically, in terms of casting spells that we talked about earlier, words are really powerful things. And so fundamentally how we use them is, is magic. And so I think a lot of the work that I do as a coach or even in in my own life or in my own relationship is to practice awareness. And so that's one reason I meditate. I call it presence practice or awareness practice because I want to get more intimately familiar with the thoughts that are going through this crazy freak show circus of my mind and try to navigate that a little bit more easily. And so being conscious of the way that I talk to myself, of the beliefs that I have, of the subconscious limiting beliefs that come out occasionally. And as you alluded to, relationships are incredible training grounds for you as a human being to yeah. navigate your own triggers, activations, fears, dreams, et cetera. 
Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's a big one trying to navigate, you know, how I show up for myself, but also for others and the language that I use to communicate all of that. But right. I'm happy to talk about anything really, if you've got specific yeah. ideas. Well, let's, let's, let's keep expanding upon that. Cause I love that flip narrative around the, the question being asked isn't the one we should even focus on to begin with. So let's say you're talking to a child and the child says to you, mommy, I'm very sad about, you know, something you just said to me, right? Often a parent will say, well, I didn't mean that, what you heard, right? And so the kid goes, well, then you're sort of telling me what I'm feeling isn't correct. How do you go around that reality to a parent? What would you say to them about, hey, you know, the best way to approach that is your sunset X is to what? Yeah, so full transparency, I'm not a parent that I know of. I'm pretty yeah. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> oh God. Um so I'm not a I'm not a parent. Um my expertise is not in uh therapy, parenting, etc. And right. and this is a, a common thing that I see in clients and in myself and in my partnership is we want to um acknowledge and honor the experience that the other person is having right right and so it's not about making it right or making it wrong or trying to justify it or trying to change it it's that old adage about the way out is through right and so if my partner came to me and said hey i'm feeling really sad because of that thing that you said i would try to hold some space and just empathize with that sensation of like oh okay like it's not a bad thing to feel sad i think our feelings have a bad rap um that kind of rhymed too that was a little bit poetic so i think our feelings and sensations in our culture have a bad have a bad rap and what i mean is anger is bad sadness is bad disappointment is bad guilt is bad and uh on the other side of that joy is good, gratitude is good, confidence is good, right? And when in reality, and this perhaps goes back to this idea of casting spells, like words are just words and feelings are just feelings. They they just are. Sad just is sad. Like that's it. And so we get to ascribe the meaning to any feeling, sensation, experience, person, etc. And so oftentimes there's this kind of knee-jerk response or reaction that, oh, you're sad? Sad equals a bad thing. I need to fix that. Right. I need to change that. I need to help you through that. Versus a lot of the work that that you'll see in the personal development space or therapy is, can you feel sad? Can you practice the skill of just feeling sadness in your system? Can you allow that sadness to be? And as a person who is in this example, helping another individual express that sadness. It's like, can I be okay with her feeling sad? Right. And if I was raised in a family where we don't talk about emotions or I was never taught how to be emotionally literate, or I grew up in a place where I received praise and love and belonging for fixing and healing and making sure everybody was okay as quickly as possible, push things aside. That's going to be very challenging me versus just sitting there and being with the person that's sad 
And I think that we can all relate to the idea of feeling sad and alone and lonely and how powerful it can be to just have somebody sit there with us in that space yeah. and not to fix or not to, not to even talk sometimes, but to just be like, can you just be here with me in this? And what most often happens is that the sadness sort of drifts away like a cloud in the sky and it just doesn't last forever. It just needs to be felt, moved through, energetically sort of touched. And then it goes away. And I think after the sadness has passed and when our nervous systems are more regulated and we're at peace and we're not um, feeling tender, then I think we can potentially have a conversation about like, what's, what's going on? You know, it's, what happened? Why did that happen? How did you feel? What then, then it can be a navigation about what caused that thing and how to move past it or move through it. But I think in the exact moment, it's very difficult to both feel sad and express that while also being rational, analytical, logical, regulated, etc. Yeah. So I'd be like, yeah. Hey, you're feeling sad, little buddy. Dang. Like what happened? Oh yeah. man. What do you need? Is there, do you need a hug? I don't know. That's usually what, what I need when I'm sad. So can I just right. have a hug? Right. Right. And I think about, you know, and I, I fall into that classic category of uh, third child, right? So got away with more capable of uh, believing that I can do anything without fear of repercussion. Uh, often uh, fall into a field where I'm a healer, right? So I think I need to fix everything immediately. So in a relationship, those are not great things. They're wonderful things at work, but not great things when it comes to seeing your child suffer. And again, going back to thinking about things I'd love to whitewash was the need to fix that which one of my children was suffering from in their younger ages. And so learning to hold space, I think this is one of the key things that parents and providers, you know, everybody needs to hear is that learning to hold that space until the child, like I think about, you know, adults do this too in very different ways, but the temper tantrum, right? Well, what, what kind of educational word choice can you use in a child who's temper tantrum? Zero, right? You can do nothing. And, and frankly, even a hug in a temper tantrum isn't functional because then it's actually encouraging the child to do the temper tantrum to get more positive outcomes. So you actually almost in a way, to your point, need to hold loving space until the child comes out of that temper tantrum. And then you're able to use verbiage or, you know, physical touch to turn the kinetic energy and then, you know, all of the energy in the human towards positivity. But when you come out, let's just think of your relationships and how you do things. When that person comes out of that space, what do you often choose in your word choice? Are you, do you tend to be, you know, trying to use your beautiful language or is it really just like, Hey, I'm here. Yeah. Simple is best. Uh, I was talking to a group that I work with the other day and I was talking about this song lyric by a band called the killers that mm -hmm. I really love. And the lyric is simply this, it's a lot. And so he's singing about his partner and his, his life and his family. And he just says, it's a lot. Right. And so I think we can all relate to that where we've had a place in life. I'm just like, so I could say, yes, like I am drowning under mountains of obligations and really flowery language where I can just be like, look, like I'm stressed. It's a lot right now. 
right? And so I think one of the beautiful aspects of communication is attempting to describe or express things as simply and as completely as possible, right? And so it's like, hey, another example that I heard was this guy, GS Youngblood that I had on the podcast. And he says that when he is in communication with his partner and what he teaches men to say is simply, ouch, right? And so if you're talking to somebody and something is said and you don't know how to express it, it's just like, ouch. And that communicates so much that communicates, Hey, that hurt. Or I didn't like that. Or that stung. There's so much that can be said in these little kind of hacks. Right. right? Um, and then in terms of just maintaining partnership, I think part of that practice is really understanding both what you need to hear and also getting comfortable with asking for it on the other side of it. Right. And so when I said earlier about a hug, it's like, Hey, can you get my partner last night? I was like, hey, Jeremy, can I have a hug? And we have an agreement in our relationship that anytime, anywhere that that request is made, it is honored. So like she knows, even if I'm really upset with her or we're, we're like in one of those days, it's like if, if there is a request for a hug, it's met. Um, so that's, that's another example of that. Um, yeah, and just trying to, trying to like, I guess just just be real and be present because I find if I am attempting to get really poetic or descriptive, I'm in my head versus being in my body and in my heart. And when I'm in my head, I'm not actually fully present. I'm not fully engaged because I'm up here playing around in the, what did I describe it as the madhouse or the circus? Like I'm at the yep. circus. I'm like, I'm in the dictionary. I'm perusing the thesaurus, right? Rather than being here, present, making eye contact and just saying, you know, I'm here. Yeah. You know, oftentimes that is one of the most powerful things that you can say to somebody. It's yeah, like, I'm here. That... I'm not going anywhere. I got you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's another one of those pieces of our modern society that is not taught well anywhere, right? So we're in general, given accolades for using our brain. We're rarely given accolades for using our heart. And so as a boy, especially growing up, it was very clear at a very young age that my happiness was going to come through achievement. And so striving for whatever it was that would get positive accolades with family or friends was the goal. So you start to leave your heart into your head and therefore, that's your modus operandi in conflict, even. And in conflict, that's a nightmare, right? Trying to trying to navigate a conflict from the brain, you know, especially when your temper tantruming is impossible, right? So you have to find a way to come down into the heart and then allow words to flow from the heart. And I think that's why the most beautiful poetry or work is from the heart, right? It's not written in a emotional conflict state of craziness it's when you're coming out of that that the words start to flow i think for most people so i think i'm hearing you very loud and clear that the people listening you know that's the the point of this whenever you're in conflict in relationship whether it's child family member colleague anything and you feel that emotional trigger is going off don't go to your brain 
you know, walk away from the brain if you can, get into the heart. If the words flow from the heart, then it'll work. And would you agree with that? Yeah, and there's a lot of research and writing done around this idea that when you are, so it's almost if our brain has a couple different parts in it and the more sort of primitive part is the emotional aspect and right. heard it described as, I forget what book it was, but as blowing the top off. Yeah. And so when the emotion is kicked in, it blows the top off and we lose access to the rational, mature, responsive person. And we're right. operating in this really kind of primitive, primal state of uh, emotionality, right? right. Or the, the other way I've described, or I've heard it described as um, John Haidt has this great book, uh, The Happiness Hypothesis, which is really good. Uh, but he describes it as a an elephant and then the rider on top of the elephant. And that we like to think that the rider on top of the elephant is in control and has everything managed. But realistically, if that elephant wants to go do something, it doesn't matter how good the rider is. That elephant's going to tear the house down and it's going to rampage through the trees, right? And so I think there is some element of self-awareness and self-growth that comes from understanding how we work, why things happen, why we respond in certain ways. And one of the reasons I really like this entire personal growth industry is because it is kind of like a puzzle to figure right. out. It's like, right. why do I do that? What influence did my family have on me growing up? Where did I learn that? Whose right. voice actually is that in my head? What am I really scared of? And so for me as a lifelong learner and a science dork, it was quite an easy transition to, to get into this space. Yeah. And it can be fun. And it doesn't have to be like heavy and dark and work. It could be like playful and light and, and fun, like a game. I, I try to inject a bit of levity into the work that I do myself and people. Yeah. You know, I think the space, the, the podcasting space has to your words, blown the top off. I think it's actually blown the top off this pressure cooker of, of lack of idea ideas for people to understand you're sitting there everything's percolating it's adhd it's this it's that we need medicines and nobody's really looking and you got guys like gabor mate writing a book scattered minds and i'm reading that book and i'm like this is my autobiography right you know the orbital frontal con you know orbital fr uh, prefrontal cortex is you know scattered and i'm impulsive and i get triggered and my impulse is to do x and okay now like you're stating i could start to explore why i choose and then have an awareness around the decision before it pops off right so i i think this space that you're speaking to is allowing folks like us who've struggled with whatever it is and again i think everyone struggles it's irrelevant to where we are i think nobody has this down to a science ever I mean, even i love dewey you know, Freeman and, and talking to him, he's got more wisdom than anyone I know. And he even admits often that, you know, I'm still working through this process. And, and so, you know, I think this is the way to help people be okay, right? Not judged with dysfunction. There is, it's not dysfunction, it's learning, constant learning on how to be in present moment with where you are, right? And I think, your story is so illustrative that I, I actually gave me goosebumps listening because no matter where you were on your journey, you were there. 
right? Like, and I know there was the the shadow, the dark, the pain, the good, the great, but listening to you talk about it, you were real with it. You were present with it. And I think that's also so critical in this conversation of, of, of being, right? Like, so no matter where we're at, we just need to be with ourselves in the moment. And then for me, I love the idea of then being able to articulate and communicate where you're at. Like I've been a lifelong hider of where I'm at, right? So if I'm struggling, I don't tell anyone, I'm always happy, just life's perfect. And I'm now at the point where like my partner the other day who we run the practice together, he said, how you doing? I said, I'm pretty pissed off. And he's like, whoa, what's up? Cause I never do that. And he's like, and I'm like, you know, I'm tired of these Medicaid care organizations not playing fair. They're bullies, they're mean, and I don't like it. And he's like, you all right? I'm like, oh, great. I just need to say that. He's like, okay, good. But up until recently, I would never have said that. I'm like, oh, they're not great. Life's perfect. And meanwhile, I'm like, and so I think that's also part of this conversation that you're allowing people to be okay with where they're at on the journey. And then to have the friends with them to accept that, right? I think that's another big piece of it. What What do you think yeah. about that part? Yeah, I think I, I agree. And and part of me was like, okay, where did you learn, Chris, at some point that anger is bad? When I feel angry, I don't express it. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying like, we're literally going to do this. But I think like, these are the interesting questions of like, oh, like, why do I bite my tongue? Is it because I don't want to make the other person feel any a certain I don't want to make them feel sad, mad, disappointed, etc. I want them to like me. And so maybe I've learned, oh, if I express anger, that means I am unlikable. That means I am unlovable. If I express anger, that means they will leave. If I express anger, that is a whole suite of bad things, right? Right. And so these are just hypothetical examples of of things that we learn and internalize as young people and we're going through life and we might not even realize that we have this whole suite of stories that we tell ourselves subconsciously. And part of the work of exploring all this stuff is to have those epiphanies of like, Oh God, why do I do that? Like, where did I learn that anger was bad, etc. And I think from a relationship context, I read this book years ago, um, David Data, The Way of the Superior Man. And, and he has yeah, this line book. in there that, that, yeah, that I remember reading, which was something like, if you're in partnership with a, a woman, so speaking like heteronormatively here for a moment, but if I'm in a partnership with my girlfriend and I say something, he, he had this line that said, she'll be disappointed in you or she'll be disappointed, but she'll respect you for it. And I remember like putting the book down and being like, hang on. What is that? What does that mean? How, why have I never heard that before? And, and sort of what he meant was my interpretation is sometimes it is a tremendous act of love to hurt somebody. And I, before you light me up on Instagram, I don't mean physical violence. I don't mean abuse. I don't mean manipulation. I mean that disappointment is a as a form of pain. And so that creates hurt. And so I might love you enough. I might love you so much that I'm going to be really honest with you here. And that might cause you to feel any number of things that we deem to be bad 
that we deem to be avoid at all costs, right? So I might love you enough that I'm going to give you this feedback to help you be a better version of yourself because I know that you can do that. And I'm going to call you forward into this next evolution or expansion. And so you might be disappointed that I said this thing, or you might be disappointed that I canceled plans on you because I honored myself. But at a deeper level, there's going to be some amount of respect there when you understand the intention below the decision. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And when when I think about that physiologically, what you're to some extent doing is you're setting the cellular polarity in the direction of healing, right? So you're actually, whatever you're deciding in that moment, you're making the conscious decision that you're going to have your body moving towards a healing process. And for when I think about, and again, I always default to my science hat and I'm trying not to all the time, but I, I do, unfortunately. And so I was just watching Limitless with um, Chris Hemsworth and Peter Atia, and, and I love Peter Atia as a podcaster. And he was talking with Chris Hemsworth about all of the realities of chronic stress and what chronic stress does versus acute stress. And I think to some extent, everything we're talking about is a way to be in relationship so that you can avoid the reality of chronic stress because chronic stress is physiologically destructive to the point of probably being one of the main causes next to food for disease and death in this country. And, and so I look at the words that you state as mechanisms in order to prevent chronicity of relationship damage. And if you can do that, you really truly have a leg up on physiologic health over time and to what Peter Tia speaks to is longevity. Because I, I don't think it's a successful path to longevity to be in conflict repeatedly in any relationship. I think that's probably the fastest way to death, unless you're a narcissist. I think you can probably block it out. But outside of narcissism, I think you're screwed. So, so that's sort of what I think about when I when I hear you speak. And then I want to touch on something else because again, I, you know, I go back to your long distance love bombs and for everybody listening to this, that is the website you all need to go spend some time on and your teenagers and, and anybody who could grow, well, actually everybody could grow, but anybody you think needs to grow in this moment, put them on that page. Cause if you do nothing by reading long distance love bombs, you will come away happy because it is just a, it's an exercise of happiness. I mean, Jeremy, I mean, you know, you drop these little bombs all over what you said you were in, in, in physical nature, but the web, I mean, that dude, I walk away from that website every time. I'm like, I feel better. You know what I mean? Like, it's almost like my meditation. I was to go to your website and read a couple pithy statements and, and kudos to you for putting it out into the world to make it such that I can do that. And I am grateful for that. But I want, I want to go to one of your questions that you had put down a while ago. And number four, you wrote, how do you make love stay? And, and so I know that's an open-ended one. But you know, when you think about life and relationships and all these things, while you're thinking about that, I'm going to sort of go through my little story. Um, so why I learned to be who I was as a kid was I was a third child in a slightly chaotic household. I thought it was leave it to beaver as a kid. But there was a lot of chaos going on. And so I found through my own existence that if I succeeded, didn't complain, did the work, everyone was happy, at least with me. And, it, and, and my perception was that the place was happy. 
And so I sort of took the burden upon myself to stay happy all the time. And then I did that in my friend groups and then I did that in medical school and in college. And I stayed that way all the time to the point that I became a peacemaker. And peacemakers will lose in the end when it comes to relationship because you have to draw a boundary. You have to draw a line in the sand. You have to choose, in most cases, a side in conflict if there's a triangle. And I ended up getting myself into a big time triangle that peacemaking was a nightmare for me. So that's sort of my aside. So, all right, back to how do you make love stay? Um, I will answer that in a moment, but just to add to that, so Gabor Mate has a, another great book called When the Body Says No. Yeah. I think it, when the Body Keeps the Score. I can't, I, I think it's oh, When the Body the, Says No. The Body Keeps the Score it's is uh, Vander, Vander Kolk. Yeah, Bessel, right? Um, yeah. But so Gabor's book talks about the implications of emotional stress and trauma on illness, disease, et cetera. And so I think to your point, you know, there's a tremendous amount ongoing in our bodies related to health that's not just physical health, right? And now right. I think it's widely recognized that we have mental health as a concern, but there's also emotional health, right? And spiritual health and right. these various other other spots. So yeah, definitely would recommend anyone um, who's interested in this topic to explore Gabor Mate. He is on another level. That guy yeah. um, is so good. But so how to, how to make love stay? That's a, a question that I read years ago by this author named Tom Robbins, who's one of my favorite writers. He's this quirky, profound genius. And he wrote this really whimsical, brilliant piece about how to make love stay. And it was something like, I, I don't want to quote it, but it was, it was somewhat absurd and ridiculous, but it got me thinking of like, how do you make love stay? And, um, and so now my, my simple answer would simply be to embody it and be it like when you can be love when you can be in a space of love, when you can feel it and project it and house it in your system and it never leaves. It's always there. Right. And mm -hmm. even implicit in the question, how do you make love stay is the idea that it can leave. Right. And so again, with the words and the, the language being powerful, you could tell a lot by the way that people phrase questions. <clears throat> so like, what if it, what if it actually can't go anywhere? What if it's always staying? What if we're just immersed in it? Like what if the entire universe is built from it? What if it's just in you if you choose to realize that it's there? And so I think for me, that is a really simple answer and a really complex, difficult endeavor to keep front of mind all the time. And so for me, it's become kind of an invitation into remembering that and reminding myself that that is possible at least as an aspirational goal, you know, that anytime, anywhere I can close my eyes and find whatever it is that I'm looking for. And then also I think there's this great word, maybe my favorite word. It's a made up word. Although I, uh, I was giving a keynote once and I was talking about this idea and I was like, it's this website called the dictionary of obscure sorrows. 
And the person, he just makes up words and then gives definitions to these experiences. And so this word is just a completely made up word. And somebody in the chat commented, all words are made up. And I was like, well, yeah, I know. But like, let me just have this one. You know, (laughs) I get the philosophical nature of that statement. I appreciate it. But like, anyway, so there's this, uh, there's this word sonder. S-O-N-D-E-R, which is the realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own, right? So the realization that every random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own is as I'm looking out, I'm seeing in the distance there through my window, there's two people going for a walk, right? And those two people, they're living a life as vivid and complex as mine. So they have dreams and they have heartbreak and they have grief and they have goals and they have friends and failings and scars and all sorts of life experiences. And I think that we forget this idea as we go about our lives. And one of the unfortunate consequences of that is that we forget that people are humans and we forget that they have tender hearts and we forget that they are living difficult lives and that they might not be having the best day all the time. And so when people cut us off in traffic, they're assholes. Or if the waiter forgets our order, he's an idiot, right? And we forget that sometimes life happens and that we are going through various struggles. And um, and so I just, I love this word sonder. I love the idea of attempting to remind ourselves of the the compassionate nature required when we actually see other people. Um, yeah, I've included this idea in a poem I wrote a long time ago about um, my mom's alcoholism and her addiction. And um, I talk about the idea that, uh, that I was like driving down the road and that my eyes were filled with tears because I was experiencing a lot of sadness and fear and that I didn't want my mom to die. And, and that I was inadvertently cutting people off or I was speeding or I was going too slow or I'd miss the off ramp. I wouldn't use my blinker. And that what I realized was that I was struggling. I was suffering. I hadn't yet realized that you can fall to pieces and still be whole. I needed a hug, right? I needed a helping hand. Um, And I was drowning and I was, I was like under this whole entire experience of life and I was feeling and I was flailing and, I was doing my very, very best, but to people on the outside, my very, very best might be judged very harshly, or I might be criticized, or I might be, you know, shamed for that experience. And so I think in terms of trying to make love stay, I think we can each, myself included, do a little bit better to try and keep kindness and compassion and some perspective on ourselves and those around us as we navigate our lives and i think uh i think a lot about that in my own job now uh, i have a practice in a rural community and uh, narcotic issues have gotten to the point in 23 years where a mother birthing a child under narcotics was a rare event 23 years ago and now it's weekly and we're detoxifying children off of morphine heroin whatever it is weekly and I noticed in the past few years how often the parent is judged so harshly by the staff, the nurses, everybody else. And 
I have really taken it upon myself now to flip the narrative every time we're in conversation to say, well, think about what it takes to fall that far down, to be that hurt, to be that struggling, to take a drug that you become addicted to and then birth a child and all of the shame that goes along with it. Think about how hard that life is while you're throwing bullets and, and stones at this person because it's very hard to look at a child be born in that situation and not have just anger. But what does the anger serve? Where's the purpose of benefit of that anger? There is none. And, and so I, I really believe what you're saying is the truth, that in order to help people shift out of their state, you have to send love their way. And so when I see these folks now, I'm like, I, I, yeah, I, I feel for you and I'm sorry you're there. And if there's anything I could do, let me know. Um, so yeah, I think that's the key. And, um, going back to Gabor Mate again, but he has this great line, which is don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain, right? And he pursues this, this concept of compassionate inquiry and, and he's a psychotherapist. I think he is an MD actually. He is um, MD. Yeah. That, that worked with drug addicts and very right. traumatized individuals in a homeless population in Vancouver. And, and when he started working with them, he would, he would essentially say, and I'm paraphrasing one of his stories in one of his great books, but he would say, Hey, thank goodness for the drugs. Thank goodness you found heroin because that is the only thing that kept you alive. Like you were in so much pain for so long that that is the only thing that could possibly help you escape that amount of pain to right. survive and go on living. Right. And I think just, again, that perspective shift, that reframe, that use of language and the power of words to really flip the script. And and again, it's inquiry for all of us um, and also recognizing that if we were born into that individual's life and had those same experiences that they did, we would be them. Right. Right. It's it's very easy to use our egos and project it onto another person's reality and be like, oh, if I was them, I would have made different choices. And it's like bullshit. Yeah. Right. No, you wouldn't. Right. You would also be addicted to heroin and doing the very best that you can and having a child in this hospital right now. Right. right? And they would be you. They would be right. the doctor. If they had lived your life because we all come in as blank slates and we have this birth lottery ticket that plants us randomly depending upon your spiritual and philosophical <laughs> ideas we show up and it's like here's your parents and here's the state you were born in and the country that you were born in and here's how life's going to unfold for you and there's a tremendous amount of randomness in that and i think by recognizing those ideas it can help to instill some humility and compassion as you alluded to and it's definitely not easy in my experience you know, compassion is challenging and it's often the higher level amount of brain capacity required. And so it is very easy. And we touched on this earlier. It's easy to just be emotional and lash out and be reactive and angry and judgmental and critical. But it's another step entirely to switch on that part of your brain and be like, hang on, like, can I find some love here? Can I help make love stay here? Now, what's another way to look at this? And so I just want to commend you, man, because that kind of idea and the the practice that you seem to be running is 
is exactly the kind of medicine that we need in this planet. And I think um, just want to acknowledge you for it. It's a big deal. Yeah. You know, I think at this point in, in our lives, we need more of love and compassion and less of judgment and splitting and what um, the fourth turning reality that was written in that great book by um, Neil Howe and William Strauss, right? We need to get to a first turning again, where we're collectively bargaining for a better future instead of polarizing and flipping ourselves into states of disease, disease and unhappiness. And so, you know, I, I, I think, you know, for me, flattery, they say, what is it? Copying someone is the greatest form of flattery. And I think everybody should copy your long distance love bombs of dropping small notes around the country. And if that's okay with you, I'm going to put that out there for folks listening today. Go take a piece of paper, write something. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't have to be perfect. It just needs to be and be positive and give it away and walk away and, and, and just let it sit there and see what happens to it. And cause I can tell you right now, I don't think anyone on this planet would pick up something positive and have a negative experience towards it. Maybe they would, but I don't think so. And I think yeah. we need a lot more of that. And Jeremy, you know, Man, I I absolutely love, 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 love what you do. Thanks, brother. And may I just, in a sh- act of uh, shameless self-promotion. Heck yeah, go. Say, uh, so the first page of my book is a quote by my friend, Buddy Wakefield. And it says, why are we not fighting fire with water? Compassion will not make us lazy. And the book is a series of small share and tear poems that the pages are perforated. And so the idea is you could buy the book. This I'm trying to like help people with your idea that might feel a little lazy is like, yo, I've already written a whole book and it's small and it's like a little coffee table thing. And you can just literally rip out the pages and then leave those places. Yeah. Um, If you so desire, I've had some really beautiful photos from, um, like dentist's office and doctor's office and things. Yeah. They leave them in the little waiting room there with a note on the cover that says like, please take one if you need. Um, and so, yeah, that's an idea too. And the book is called, it'll be okay. And you will be too. Yep. And, uh, and yeah, I'm on Instagram at long distance love bombs. I have a podcast called the long distance love bombs podcast. If you're not sick of my voice or ideas yet, uh, there's 170 episodes of me rambling with, experts and geniuses and uh and chris thanks again so much for having me man i really enjoyed this conversation and uh just appreciate you and the work that you're doing in the world too so so right on yeah this is uh these hours are the most fun i have in my day and i and i could tell you i love my job more than many things uh i get up i don't consider work work it's fun to take care of kids it's fun to you know help kids get better you know, have better lives and get more help. But man, this hour has become my hobby and it is just the most enjoyable thing to talk to you and other folks, like you said, and give it away and just let people listen and learn. And and for the guests listening, you know, other than going to longdistancelovebombs.com, which I think everybody should do right now, just go spend one minute and be happy in that minute because it is, it's happy. It's happiness, right? It's just, it's great. But, you know, I, I think... If you have a teenager in any way, shape, or form who is struggling with anything when it comes to their their choices, their passion, their journey, where they're going, 
you know, you, you wouldn't send a kid out onto the soccer field without a coach teaching him how to kick the ball. And I think it's it's sort of unconscionable that we have spent all this time sending our kids out into the world without good coaching of how to use their brain. And so folks like Jeremy and many other life coaches out there come ready to help in, in so many ways. And I could tell you personally, I've grown immensely from spending time with, with folks like Jeremy and Traver and Michael Gay and Dewey Freeman and so many other wonderful humans who give away their knowledge just so easily, right? And to, for everyone knowing, I do not pay anyone for these podcasts and I make no money. And that is the greatest gift I can give to the world. And so it takes a lot for somebody like Jeremy to spend his beautiful time with us to learn. So I am grateful for you, Jeremy, and and I hope everybody spends the time today on long distance love bombs. Your book is is great. It it'll be okay, and you will be too. So yeah, my my brother, I just grateful, grateful, grateful. Yeah, thank you. And just a quick note: Trevor Baum, who you mentioned, is a dear friend of mine, and he has a program called the Uncivilized Teen, I think, and it's specifically designed for teenage boys to help them. Right. what they're going through and become better, better men. So um, you can check his stuff out online too. It's Traver Bohm and, um, or you can just message me and I'll shoot you the link or whatever, but there are more and more options out there for people and particularly men. The, yeah. the men's work movement has now got some great momentum. And you've mentioned a couple of the, the gurus out there. So yeah. Still and do you, have a Twitter, you have a Twitter handle too? Or uh, no? I do. I do. But like, I don't really use it very frequently. Like Instagram is my main, my main jam. Um, okay. And I have a Facebook page too, but Instagram and the podcast and the main things. Yeah. All right. Well, Hey, from the other side of the country, go get some skiing in. I hope you get up there to Whistler and tear up some, tear up your boards and have a blast. And uh, man, I appreciate your hour. Yeah, man. An honor. Thank you. All right, Jeremy. Bye. Well, there you have it a to me fascinating and lovely conversation with jeremy goldberg about that which he finds interesting in the world and beautiful so i want to read a little bit more of his work again i really appreciate the effort he's put into making his long distance love bombs website and some of the information he has under the thought catalog he has an article entitled some days are shit sandwiches here's how to deal with them this was written in January the 31st of that month in the year 2017. He says, Today was a rusted bucket of smashed crabs wrapped in old socks, soaked in dead skunk toes, hot mess, stress hairballs, and assholes. And that's okay. Today was a good day, dressed as a bad day. A blessing, disguised as a burglar, and I pickpocketed my own heart and robbed what could have been by focusing on all that I did wrong. Today was a bad idea. Today hurt. And I'm scared tomorrow will be worse. And that's okay. Today, my demons made an appearance, evil, spying eyes through the chain-link fence of my mind, and I tried to play it cool, thinking a greeting and a bit of begging could warm their cold and send them fleeing. But it didn't, and they're still here. And that's okay. Today was a day when I made mistakes. When I let myself get the best of me, and I failed life's little test of me, and then decided to solve my problems by making more and bigger bad choices. And it didn't work. And I let her down. 
and I let them down, and I let myself down, and I wish that wasn't true, but it is, and that's okay. Today was a shit sandwich wrapped in burnt plastic served with dead maggots. Lost battles, rotten apples, and a side of salad of bug tongues, scabs, and turds. Today was gross, and that's okay. Today was a reminder. I'm not all there yet. I'm rough edges with rough patches. More second glances and less second chances. I'm missing pieces and peace. Still a student in a class where... It's pain who teaches the hard way about the work I have to do. So many more things to ponder and improve. I'm hard work in progress, and that's okay. Today was a regret-wrapped riddle I couldn't solve, and I fought four answers and tried them all except one. I give up. I surrender. I wave my white flag, shrug, and sit down. I accept not knowing how to befriend my doubt and my pain, and my pride. I ache tonight, and that's okay. Today was an avoidable, unnecessary, incomplete, and internal battle that ended in defeat for a part of me I had to release. But I'm not quite sure that I feel free, and that's okay. It's all okay, and after all, tomorrow is another day. So, That's just a small sampling of the many great pieces of literature that he's written, whether it's in poem form or long article form or short snippet form. All of it's lovely. And I do encourage you to go to his site randomly to read different pieces of information that he's written to cheer your day up. Because, you know, on that one... There are some days there are shit sandwiches. And frankly, for us all to commiserate about that reality, but eventually get up and realize tomorrow is another day. And we will inadvertently end up in a better place if we keep persevering. Because in the end, after there's a day that's a shit sandwich, there should be days that are not. And those shit sandwich days help us really appreciate the not shit sandwich days. Sort of like... How would the sunlight look if it was always sunlight and you never had a rainy day to compare to? It would get boring. It would get uninteresting. It would get commonplace. But to have the contrasting days, good and bad, light and dark, cold and warm, all of those differences allow us to appreciate the position we're in at any time we're in. I'm not going to belabor this one anymore. I think you've gotten the picture and the point. The work that he's put in is worth your time. I truly appreciate his effort to pass along the beauty of the long-distance love bomb, the statements that help a person have a better day randomly placed around the world. And I encourage you to do this. Buy his book, tear off a page, page, put it somewhere. Brighten another person's day. Say hi to somebody you don't normally wouldn't say hi to. Say kind word to somebody who's in a bad mood. Do anything you can to... Change the narrative on your day and someone else's day. Well, that's it for me. As always, hug those kids. If you like this, review it on Apple uh, Podcasts. You know, give me a commentary any way which you want to. You can also go to newsletter at salisburypediatrics.com and drop me a note there. Either way, appreciate him, appreciate you. 
Hug those kids, and as always, have a great day. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and educational purposes. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician and or healthcare professional. It's not to be used to diagnose or treat any health issue. This podcast does not constitute the development of a provider or patient relationship. Have a great day.